Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, it's London in 1939, and Evelyn Varley has spent her life trying to blend in, masking her working class background from her days as a scholarship student in a prestigious English boarding school, all the way through to winning a first in German at Oxford University. Her language skills and ability to mask the truth are perfect qualifications for wartime MI5 and the complex world of domestic espionage. But what will this life of deceit and betrayal ultimately cost her and will it all be worth it? Rebecca Stafford's new book, The Imitator, skips between the pre- and post-war period, examining the role of a young spy and what the war costs her. Rebecca joins me soon to talk about the book, the real-life stories it was based on and the craft behind writing historical fiction. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. It was absurd after all this time to still be afraid of the war and its long shadow hanging over her. Evelyn knew that, but it wasn't fear like the men would have felt on the boats or on the beaches. Not the same fear as when the German bombs rained down across London, picking out targets like indiscriminate skittles. This fear was made of quicker, steelier matter. It was sleek and icy, working its way inside Evelyn's blood. It was the same fear she felt when she first met Nina, of being seen. That's an edited excerpt from Rebecca Stafford's new book, a historical novel, The Imitator. Set in London and shifting between the pre- and post-war period, the novel follows Evelyn Varley, a young woman who has spent her life trying to blend in, masking her working-class background from her days as a scholarship student in a prestigious English boarding school all the way to winning a first in German at Oxford University. Her language skills and ability to mask the truth are the perfect qualifications for wartime MI5 and the complex world of domestic espionage. But what will this life of deceit and betrayal ultimately cost her and will it all be worth it? Rebecca Stafford joins me now to talk about the book, the real life stories it was based on and the craft behind creating a historical novel. Rebecca, welcome to Backstory. Hey, Mel. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really lovely to read uh, such a well-constructed fiction novel set in another time period, and I really want to get under the skin of how you put it all together. But I should also firstly congratulate you on your debut novel. Your first book was nonfiction. What does it feel like to have something that is completely the creation of your own 
brain that's out in the world? <laughs> um, well, look, it, I, I, um, it's definitely different talking about a novel, um, you know, in comparison to talking about a memoir, um, particularly, um, you know, Bad Behaviour, my first book, which was about my experiences as a, as a teenager at a boarding school um, and exploring girls' aggression and bullying. So... Um, you know, it, it it is a little it is a little easier <laughs> to talk about this one, and it's been it's been really great, um, yeah, to have the to have the opportunity. But yeah, to work on fiction is something I, I always hoped that I would do. So I'm really pleased to to be here now doing that. Now, this character doesn't bear any resemblance to uh, to you, as you've um, described in your earlier memoir. Um, but there is certainly a setting in um, you know in a boarding school and and elements of of bullying, I guess, that lead this character to really uh, try to to sort of, you know, I guess, get along by blending in. And this is a skill that later leads her into uh, this kind of career in espionage that she lands in. But this was actually based somewhat, at least, on a, a genuine historical life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I when I began, you know, I really was interested in writing about World War Two, and I was interested in female spies. But you know, that was really where my knowledge um, about female spies ended. I, I didn't know all that much about them, apart from perhaps the sort of stereotypes that we imagine in in popular culture about female spies. So anyway, I did a bit of preliminary research, and I came across this woman. Her name was Joan Miller, and like Evelyn in The Imitator, she was in her very early twenties when she was recruited into MI5 and she was recruited at the beginning of the war uh, in London. So her, her work, um, you know, was was within the city and one of her jobs, which I fictionalised in the novel, is to infiltrate a far-right um, German sympathiser group of British men and women, very high-profile, very influential establishment figures uh, within, you know, in London. And in order for her to do that, she needs to assume and adopt the attitudes and views of these people. And, you know, obviously they were supporters of Hitler, but they were also um, virulently anti-Semitic and uh, anti-communist and held, you know, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, very abhorrent um, and deeply unpleasant views. So she had to I suppose, kind of train herself um, and educate herself in in these perspectives. Um, And the novel explores how she manages to do that and I suppose where she finds herself in a quite kind of complicated and complex situation where she needs to befriend these people and how she manages, I suppose, um, the, the morality around those friendships which are all designed, you know, in order for her to, to ultimately betray them in order to expose them for, you know, for who they really are. It's a really complex situation that you've placed your character in and it's quite well drawn how you've, uh, you try to kind of pull in these ideas of what creates someone who would be drawn to that life in the first place, that in fact she is mm. someone who, who obviously has tried to kind of fit into that world already. So she's already playing a game um, that is quite a dangerous game for herself um, personally and her own sense of identity. And that's certainly something that that comes up again and again. But I want to get into the real guts of how you've you've made this book. Uh, It's very easy when you read a book that is set in a historical time period and feels quite naturalistic to kind of feel like, you know, that's a fairly easy thing to have done. Uh, And I think that you have achieved that 
that with this book. It, it really does flow very nicely. You get a very strong sense of the time period. I never feel pulled out of it in any way. And I want to talk about how you've done that because these are all choices that you've made, what kind of language you use, what sort of historical idiom, the kind of things that you talk about, the details you put in, the details you leave out. So can we start by discussing, you know, how you sort of set about um, taking all of the research that you've done, putting it to one side, and then beginning to create an authentic voice for the time period? Yeah, I mean, look, these are, in, in some sense, they're, they're uh, difficult questions to answer. In, in the sense of the voice, I mean, you know, for me, I began, um, you know, I think many writers begin with character. So for me, it was the imagining of Evelyn. And she was a particular age at a particular time. She, you know, she dressed in a particular way and she speaks in a particular way. And, you know, all the psychological elements then feed into that as well. Um, but, I mean, in terms of that kind of writing process, um, for me, I felt I had to very much kind of bed down um, the period and the, the milieu um, and, and that kind of social social moment that she exists in. And, I mean, in, in, terms, of, in terms of Evelyn's character, you know, I suppose a little like for myself as I approach the book, she, she is a bit of a fish out of water. So she... Um, you know, as you mentioned before, she grows up, you know, she has quite a modest upbringing in a small town in southern England and she unexpectedly, you know, is kind of elevated into a new world when she wins a scholarship and that 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 places her in the orbit of, of you know, wealthy and influential um you know, young women who she who she becomes friends with and who help her later in her career and and basically arrange for her to um, be recruited into MI5, which is a similar again a similar um, real life aspect of Joan Miller's story too. But for Evelyn, this isn't a world you know in which she belongs, um, and so she. Evelyn's very observant and a little like a novelist, I think, mm-hmm. too. She's kind of, you know, this, this world that she's entering is new to her in the way that it was new to me exploring it through the work. So she comes to adopt, you know, you know the, the kind of, I suppose, to, to her mind, the sort of refined um, aspects of life and, and attitudes of, of this, um, you know, upper-class world that she suddenly finds herself moving around in. But the thing for Evelyn is she's she's not born into that world and once she leaves, you know, her modest kind of family life, she, she's somewhat kind of trapped, um, you know, trapped between the two. Um, but, in I mean, in terms of the research and everything like that, the writing of it, it, it was kind of a, a layering, I suppose. Um, you know, you might begin a scene. So, for instance, the book opens in a hotel. Uh, so I went, you know, a lot of the research was made kind of on the ground in London. Um, obviously, this was many years ago now when we when we could go overseas <laughs> and we could travel <laughs> four times. Um, I'm right. sure we will get there again. One can yeah. only hope. Uh, <laughs> um, and so for me, that was very helpful because I could, you know, I could really kind of, you know, literally picture, you know, this place, this this hotel that she went into, what it looked like on the inside. So, you know, I I, I kind of did a lot of that foundational work when I visited London and I went to Oxford and to Lewis, her home, her hometown, her village, and then I kind of, you know, you sort of feed that into the scenes, and then you go back over and you feed a little bit more in you. You know, it, there are so many details in historical fiction that you need to 
ensure accurate and I mean at least for me they don't come about naturally I don't I didn't immediately know what they were drinking what kind of shoes they wore you know what music was playing at the time um, all of those a lot of the social conventions as well um, and so then that gets sort of layered over the over the top of it as well so you know for me I was reading a lot about food and drink and music and, and, and life. Um, I had maps of London sort of pinned up to my study to make sure that you could walk from A to B and, you know, was this building destroyed in the war and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, so it isn't a kind of an accumulative um, process as well, but setting, setting for me was really important. Mm. And, I mean, the voice, you know, I think, you know, if you uh, I read a lot of historical fiction and, and have read a lot of it. So, you you know, that there's the fiction, obviously, that was written within the period and then there's the reimagining or sort of revisionist history, I suppose, which is what this is, um, that, that you kind of... Uh, you know, sort of go, absorbs sort of somewhat into your into your kind of bloodstream and then you're sort of working your way through that. But for, for me, I mean, I had a clear sense of Evelyn and, and I didn't, you know, even though she was from a particular time, um, she still felt quite contemporary to me because, and, and immediate to me because so many of her sort of emotional and psychological challenges, I, I felt a great empathy, um, you know, towards because... What an extraordinary situation to find yourself in when you're 21. Absolutely. You're working for the intelligence agency <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're required to undertake this this extraordinary and dangerous work. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of the novel sort of tracks that real-time adjustment to this new reality. Um, but for Evelyn, you know, she... You know, as we were talking about before, she's sort of primed for this work because her whole life leading up to this point has been um, dedicated to constructing a self that she thinks will, will help her get on and, and succeed and move forward. Um, this obviously gets her, maybe unsurprisingly, into a bit of trouble later in the book because her moral, that kind of moral kind of core is, is really kind of undeveloped and... Um, she spent so much thinking, so much time thinking about you know this presentation of herself that she hasn't really built built up a, a real sense of her inner self um, too. So that's you know the novel, you know the the later time frame when we meet her after the war is her reckoning I think with that with with, with those sort of failings and what they've what that's done to her. I have to say one of the things that uh, really struck me when I was reading this book was the characterization, particularly of the kind of gender politics of the time and how mm. you've managed to handle that in a way that I thought was incredibly appropriate to the time frame while highlighting it in a way that I think a modern audience would appreciate. So she, um, very often Evelyn, the central character, is sort of the, you know, the object of unwanted, um, you know, male, you know, what we would basically call sexual assault um, now or at the very least um, inappropriate, you know, sexual touching or things of that nature. There's also other kind of, you know, her relegation to uh, working in menial jobs when she first starts uh, in M. I five um, is also something that's of that time. You don't have the the um, protagonist overtly question it, perhaps in a way that a modern a modern person would. But you have her her clear discomfort um, and these ideas of what it was like to be a person in that time when we didn't have the literacy that we do 
around the, the lack of acceptability of those kinds of things. Um, can you talk about how you handled this? Because I think it was a really uh, a delicate kind of dance that you played where you were trying to stay very much within the time frame and the social mores while still showing that this was, you know, very much an issue of its time. Yeah, look, I mean, it was something that was really important because, I mean, ultimately what was driving me to write the book was was a kind of rescuing of a character like Evelyn who's been forgotten. I mean, a lot of historical fiction now is about, um, you know, kind of uncovering, um, you know, really important um, figures within, within our history and giving them, you know, the attention that they deserve. I mean, the thing that I noticed, what, what, what really kind of sparked my very initial interest in writing a war story was I came across an obituary in a UK newspaper about a woman. She was in her 80s and she'd recently died. And shortly before her death, she revealed to her family for the first time that she had been a spy. And she was involved in all kinds of covert operations, being parachuted into France to help the French resistance, you know, occupied, you know, kind of... um, France and um, all kinds of various um, quite dangerous high-stakes um, operations. Uh, she did all that work, and then, you know, a couple of years um, into her service, her position was terminated, and she was basically went back um, to her life, which at the time was... Um, living at home with a husband and children, and she didn't have a career after that point. And, I mean, that just, you know... I've that was the first story I read, and then I came across countless numbers of these stories about how women were treated within the service and how women were treated generally after the war. You know, as as many of us, you know, would know that women kind of stepped up during that period when men were away fighting. And then when men returned, women's roles were kind of really compromised, and a lot of them sort of went back, um, you know, went back to, to life as it was. And that really angered me and, um, you know, I, I felt kind of demoralised by that. And Joan Miller, who, who we've been talking about, um, who's, you know, uh, Evelyn's loosely based on, had a similar experience where her really important, you know, work within the intelligence agency, within, you know, a year or two after the investigations, she her position, um, you know, within MFI was ended. And she never went on to work again. Um, for the for the government and for the intelligence agency, so Evelyn enters into this world. It's a deeply masculine space, um, but you know she is also a product of her time. So I wanted to illuminate those conditions for a young woman. I didn't want to kind of, you know, I wanted there to be subtlety, hopefully. Um, and I mean, Evelyn, I don't want to give too much away um, in terms of the ending, but she, you know, as many women were, um, not very well treated within the agency mm. as well. And and their achievements and, and the significance of their roles are often kind of forgotten and overlooked. I think that's why uh, the way you've constructed the book, which is set over two quite distinct time frames, there's the sort of, you know, pre-war period or the period of, of Evelyn's career or the, you know, the lead up to her career as a, uh, as a spy for MI5, um, spying on domestic um, mm. targets, so people who, you know, fascists, as you've mentioned, in within the kind of aristocracy or the upper echelons of society, um, and also the time immediately post-war. So you do get that sense of, of where she ends up, which is always, um, you know, I, I mean, and she's allowed this, this potential for um, having you know, something beyond what perhaps you might have imagined her outcomes to be at the start of the book. Um, So I I really want to 
want to delve into some of this a little bit more as well, because you are, again, really trying to raise up these forgotten histories and these people who haven't really gotten the, haven't been lauded in the way that they should have been, um, women who really took on these central roles uh, in, in a wartime setting, and especially someone uh, like uh, the character upon whom this book is based, who were doing things that were so secretive, um, you would never have known about them anyway. I also thought it was really interesting that you managed to wind in another character in this book, uh, Vincent, uh, I hope I got that name right, Who's, uh-huh. um, who is another spy and who has uh, come to uh, England as a child, um, you know, was smuggled out of Germany um, and now works for MI5 and is, of course, of Jewish background. And I immediately thought I'd... I'd read recently um, a bit about the um, ex-company, I think, ex-troop, I think it's called, the Jewish commando troop that were made up of people who'd arrived um, in England um, in the kinder transports and who then went into, again, this kind of secretive role um, as German Jews who basically, you know, then had to take on English names and go to, you know, to fight, um, obviously highly motivated to fight Nazis. Um, But I thought that was really interesting. It's another hidden history of people who, again, um, you know, I guess Inglorious Bastards comes as close as as it might be to actually revealing that history. Um, But, you know, these are people who uh, maybe weren't necessarily valorised at all during their lifetimes. It's sort of you know, wonderful. You've got a kind of hint of that that character in there as well. What was the motivation for adding Vincent into the into the frame? Yeah, well, I think Vincent offers a, a few different aspects, particularly in relation to Evelyn. I mean, Vincent, Vincent, um, who I suppose, in a sense, is is becomes Evelyn's closest friend because they are each other's. You know, they they can share so much with each other because they can't share it with others. And Vincent has other other secrets too um, that that he feels um, you know able able to share about his personal life that he can't with others. But Vincent's there to really. I suppose represent or remind or educate Evelyn on the on the human reality of the war because Evelyn, uh, you know, she she has a level of education, but she's not particularly worldly. And you know, so much of her work for MI5, you know, it's within London, as we've mentioned. It's it's um, it's spying um, and gathering intelligence on you know domestic threats. Uh, but she, you know, as as many as many people in the UK, you know, were at that time, she wasn't really wholly aware of what was going on outside of Britain. Um, you, you know that that kind of the dark cloud that we that we know about now in hindsight in terms of um, you know Hitler's programs in particular around his treatment um, you know of Jewish nationals across all of the territories that he that he'd invaded and Vincent you know Vincent has come has come to Britain because of the threat of Nazism and there's a scene in the book where he reveals to Evelyn that his parents were actually murdered in the pogroms of Kristallnacht and for the first time, Evelyn is really confronted with the the human dimension and the threat um, that that you know is posed really to the whole world. Whereas up until that point, it had been, I think, somewhat sort of abstract in her mind because you know it, it's as much a kind of intellectual sort of battle that's going on, where she's interacting with people on this sort of one to one sort of social basis. 
but the, the, what the stakes, I think, are revealed to her. And so, you know, the work that they're doing in Britain um, can have kind of real ramifications um, more broadly in terms of what the Allies are doing um, over in Germany. So, um, but, but, yeah, so Vince, Vincent kind of reveals, um, I think, to Evelyn um, a, lot, a lot of lacking in her own understanding about mm. the situation and also makes her understand, I think it's a turning point for her as to, okay, you know, I've got to, uh, you know, I, I can't fail. Um, there's so much at stake here. And, um, you know, the, the things, things sort of roll on from that point too. But, but Vincent's important um, because, you know, he offers everyone the opportunity for her to be honest about some of her own, her, her own kind of uncertainties or anxieties about who she is and the work that she's doing. Absolutely. I, I think it's also really interesting to, to think about some of the, um, you know, horrifying rise of fascism that is sort of looked at in this book, the, the domestic side of it in the UK, um, with the the group that Evelyn is going to infiltrate headed by a, again, a character that is loosely based on a, a real life character, um, Nina um, Ivanov. Have I got a, her name right? Ivanov, yeah. Ivanov, yep. my apologies, yep. um, is no, based right. on, again, another a character who, who was a real-life character. Um, but I found it fascinatingly and horrifyingly contemporary in many ways. Uh, oh. These people, um, as you've depicted them, are very much seeing every single thing that's happening in the world as a Jewish conspiracy. Um, that oh. is an incredibly and horrifyingly timely thing to think about because, of course, we are now going through... Um, very similarly, a lot of people in the world um, believing conspiracy over fact. Some of these things do land squarely back in the old anti-Semitic tropes, I'm sad to say. Um, also, we have obviously got some, some very real, um, you know, and devastating consequences to that of, of people being attacked, etc. We also have consequences mm. of things like, you know, the the winding in of that with ideas about vaccines and you know, the mm. health consequences of people, they're not taking them as a result. So I sort of was really thinking, I mean, when you were writing this, was that something that, that you were channeling these ideas of modern concerns around conspiracy and the rise of anti-Semitism or other old kind of, um, you know, uh, I guess, scapegoating type conspiracies? Yeah, look, I mean, it was, in, it was sort of impossible not for that. For, for those sort of issues not to work their way into the book. I started writing the book uh, in 2016. So uh, first there was the Brexit um, vote, um, which obviously, you know, has, has reshaped Britain in a way that, you know, really hasn't seen in, in a century. Um, and the drive for Brexit, you know, really was based around virulent nationalism, <laughs> racism, xenophobia. I mean, there's just no way around that reality. Um, and then, of course, hot on the heels of Brexit was Trump. So, and, you know, obviously in Australia, we've got our own conversations around these issues as well. They do play out differently. So, yeah, this is very much swirling, swirling around me as I was writing. Um, you know, what, was re what I found really interesting and sort of terrifying about this group that Evelyn infiltrates is that the leader of the group is actually a member of parliament and you know this is a person who has real kind of power and capacity to influence um, on a political level and also on a social level and you can see that you can also see that playing out now across you know many countries within government um, 
And, I mean, the, the book, you know, in terms of the writing and editing it, of it had pretty much wrapped up by the time COVID had hit. But, again, you see, you see that playing out too, particularly around kind of conspiracy theories. So, you know, I think I think one of the reasons why, you know, we continue sort of being drawn back to stories of World War Two um, and the ideologies around that conflict is because we are still playing them out in our kind of contemporary political and social sphere, unfortunately. Um, the issues that have been driving it, those kind of fractures within society haven't gone away and this particular moment that we're living in now I think you could say that they're kind of really really kind of magnified and under pressure um I mean thankfully Trump's gone um but you know the 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 hatred that he um kind of fermented has not and that divisiveness within their within their society and politics in particular hasn't gone away um and so yeah, I mean, it's. I didn't kind of explicitly want to to sort of parallel those the contemporary times with then, but it's also impossible not to draw, not to draw those parallels. Um, kind of concern, you know, worryingly, um, and more worryingly is, you know, we we leave um, the the imitator, the novel, sort of. I know we jump forward in time after the war, but Evelyn's work and and role sort of ends right before the kind of the full-blown military conflict of the war. So, you know, we I guess in a contemporary, in a, with a kind of contemporary perspective, where where, do, where does all of this end for us now as well? We're still kind of playing out these kind of paranoias and anxieties and kind of deep sort of divisions. So, yeah, it's definitely, I think, a concerning moment for us. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Rebecca, I want to talk about uh, the fact that this book is known as The Imitator in this region, in Australia and I believe New Zealand, but elsewhere in the world it's known by another name. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, look, um, so so the book has been published in the States and in Canada uh, last week, actually, and the title there is An, An Unlikely Spy. Uh, and so we had, I mean, look, it's less common these days, I suppose, to have different titles across different regions, but it, it, it does still happen from time to time. Um, and when we were, when the book was um, picked up by my American publisher, uh, we, we talked with my Australian publisher about titles because we it's it is preferable to be on the same page but in the states as i've discovered there is obviously their their publishing industry is is very big um in in comparison to ours and so they have their own sort of subgenres, i suppose of historical fiction and uh world war ii uh fiction in the States is, is very big and very popular. So when you have a novel, you know, that fits within that genre, they like to publish sort of right into that zone, so to speak. And so I, I think that's why the decision was made to slightly adjust the title and to, to get Spy in there um, because that, in terms of the way they promote and market and sell the book 
uh, into store. Uh, that that's that's really that component is really important. So that's that's why we ended up with the different title, um, which I hope isn't too confusing for people. Um, but there it is. <laughs> There's also quite a different cover I've noticed as well that that does seem to really play up that the very um, you know 1940s feeling as well, which I imagine. Yeah. And there's there's teacups as well, which I think, um, yes. <laughs> you know, with a lot of the kind of uh, desirability of that sort of, um, you know, the, the British sort of idea, you know, historical British stuff sort of seems to do yep. quite well in the American market. So that makes sense. Absolutely, yes. Yep, that's that's right. So that was also interesting to see the way that the, you know, cover designs um, are, are different in terms of what that, what that imagined sort of market is as well. So that's been really interesting from my perspective. Yeah, look, I, I wanted to talk a bit about this because I think that there, um, you know, it's it's one of those interesting little um, tidbits about the um, the world of publishing, and that is that obviously you don't always use the same um, titles or you don't always use the same covers, but you also don't always use the same language <laughs> depending mm. on who uh, you're communicating with. Um, we have regional differences in how we express ourselves in English. It's a it's a very varied language. Um, across the post-colonial world, I guess, if you like. Um, mm. Was that something that when you went through the edits for the, um, for the versions um, for the North American market that you had to do a lot of work on as well? Not not a huge amount, actually, to be honest. I mean, in terms of the editorial process, um, my Australian publisher had done the initial kind of structural um, report on the novel and then uh, my American publisher sort of read that version that I had had reworked the sort of re-edited version and I they provided some feedback and we incorporated that into into both versions uh, because again it, it's desired that the final version even if you do end up having different jacket art and different even a different title that that the two versions of the book within the same English speaking countries uh, you know, are as similar as possible. Uh, but then, of course, in the next stage of um, of the editorial process, the book was was Americanized in the sense of changes to spelling. Um, I think footpath became pavement. Um, a couple of those, you know, sort of language language differences. But the difference, I think, for, with my book is that it's, it is written with, you know, in a particular time with that vernacular, that that sort of British, but also sort of wartime, you know, sort of voice so there's there's not too much mm. because it's not you know you, you don't have that contemporary voice whereas perhaps if it was um you know a modern a modern story there'd be more work done to that but it, but at the same time too you know i think when a when a book is set in a particular place that there needs to be an adherence to, to the voice that's attached to that place as well um so yeah it wasn't particularly kind of um you know, particularly extensive those those sorts of notes, um, either that I got from the Americans. Though I do, you know, I do know from from working in publishing myself and and from other writing friends that sometimes those changes can be, you know, those 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 editorial conversations can get really interesting. You know, <laughs> what is Vegemite, for instance? Can't <laughs> they be eating peanut butter or something? You know, something like that. So. <laughs> Sacrilegious. Uh, look, I, I I, honestly, this um, something that's really occurred to me when I, I was going through this as well is that you've done. Um, notes at the back of the book that talk about the historical time frame, the historical facts um, 
upon which some of this was based and how you've changed them. This is actually a really important part of every historical novel is the author's note at the end really talking about what is accurate to the time frame and what has been played with. Um, I, I can only imagine <laughs> the kind of grief that historical um, fiction authors get um, about things that are not true, which sort of yeah. seems paradoxical because, of course, you're writing a work of fiction, so surely you can take licence. But I think that there is this presumption that with historical fiction there is an adherence to at least the kind of historical facts that you can stick to um, to the best of your ability. So can you talk about that sort of, you know, that little juggling act that you've done um, and, and sort of alluded to, obviously, at the end of the book? Yeah, so look, I mean, there, there's the sort of, there, I suppose there are big scale questions to think about when you're constructing a story um, and then there's the small, you know, kind of anachronisms and, and accuracies that are really important. Um, so for me, the author's note that you mentioned um, sort of describes, well, firstly it describes, you know, some, some key texts that were really useful to me in, in terms of my research um, and spoke a little bit about um, Joan Miller being being influential in terms of the way that I... Uh, Joan Miller, not so much in her personality, but her work at MI5 and how she was recruited was really uh, what I used to construct the investigations that everyone's involved in. But, you know, when you're telling a story in the way that I have and you're adhering to the shape of the plot and the, ca- and the story arc and trying to create tension and suspense, it is, I found in any case, it was necessary to conflate some dates and to change um, some some elements of the story. So, for instance, Evelyn is involved in in an interrogation um, of a Dutch national who they fish out of the water off Ireland and um, they bring him in and it's quite a big sort of turning point in terms of her role within MI5. At the time that this happens in the story, um, you know, that, that doesn't actually match when these when these Dutch nationals were fit, fished out of the water. That that actually came later in the war by about eight months or so, and I felt that it was important to indicate that because you know there are people who will be reading with the knowledge of when particular things were happening, um, and there are a few other things like that. Um, so some of the timeline stuff I kind of moved moved months around and, and things like that, um, particularly around the investigation and the real life investigations that were happening. Um, I, I crunched the timeline up a little bit just to keep that pace moving and to bring bring about the kind of climax um, at the end of the story as well. But the smaller details, yeah, it, it is a really tricky balance. There's so much to fact check. I mean, I am an edit, you know, I'm an editor by trade, so a lot of my work is fact checking and um, you know, ensuring, you know, was this station open in 1939? Um, you know, um, uh, you know, was you know, was the street name this street name back then as it was then, or was there a park there, and all those sorts of things? So there was a lot of kind of, and you know, these sound like small things, but you'd be <laughs> you'd be surprised what people pick up, yes. and um, you know, kind of um, want to want to comment on or provide feedback on um, as well. So, I mean, I, I guess where that creative license sort of comes about is is the emotion is that kind of emotional landscape I think a little bit and also again yeah I, I felt that I could move I felt that I could move some events sort of real life events um, around somewhat in the timeline in order to 
service the story. And, you know, the, the author's note explains that. I, I think, I hope um, that that's okay. I'm sure you've um, covered off enough to, um, to <laughs> assuage any uh, Goodreads reviewers who might. I hope so. <laughs> might oh, be well, you know, they're notorious, those Goodreads reviewers. You've got to watch out for them. <laughs> got to watch out. Well, look, um, you've done a fantastic job, Rebecca, and I can't believe we've already, uh, you know, spoken for as long as we have. I really could. Uh, talk to you much longer about this work. So thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you for having me, Mel. That was uh, Rebecca Stafford, author of The Imitator, a historical fiction novel now out through Alan and Unwin. You can also read her previous work, Bad Behaviour, a memoir of bullying and boarding school. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Twitter.